Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Andrew Bycroft, CEO of The Security Artist. It's wonderful to have you along today. Andrew Bycroft is a fellow that I saw speak at a conference recently around cybersecurity. And I also read his book recently published, The Cyber Intelligent Executive. And I found what he had to say really fascinating and also I think uh, critically important for business leaders in today's economy. So I thought it would be great to have him along on the Arate podcast to share his story in the hope that uh, you will find some great pearls of wisdom here that you can apply to your own businesses. Before I introduce Andrew to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any vacancies in your team that we can assist with, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat with you about how we can help. Let me now introduce to you, Andrew Bycroft. Andrew Bycroft was born in Melbourne, Australia, and he started his career by studying physics at university before moving across into information technology. He had a number of operational roles within the information technology space before moving into business development roles. And then at a young age, after having a break to retire, he decided that he wanted to start his own business. The Security Artist, which he founded in January 2013. Since that time, Andrew has been consulting to a broad range of organisations, including a number of the ASX Top 200, taking them on their journey to cyber resilience. More recently, he has published his book, The Cyber Intelligent Executive. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Andrew Bycroft. Well, Andrew, welcome to the Arate Podcast. It's great to have you along today. And uh, it was really uh, interesting to see you present this morning to a large uh, room full of uh, IT and, and business people. Uh, is that what brought you to Brisbane? It is. And thank you for having me on the program, Richard. Oh, it's great to uh, have you along. I found uh, you know, what your story and, and your business fascinating. And I'm sure the people who are listening to the podcast will also. Perhaps just to begin with, why don't you have a talk to us about your current uh, professional response? Responsibilities. Well, at the moment, I'm the CEO of a company called The Security Artist, which yep. is a management consultancy that specialises in cybercrime. Okay. Um, in addition, I also am a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and yep. I provide some educational material for them on the topic of cybercrime. Okay. And an interesting name for your business, um, uh, the use of the word artist, which you wouldn't normally associate with, uh, you know, working within, you know, IT and, and cyber related businesses. Why did you put that in the title? Um, so it's quite an interesting story behind it. But typically, I believe we've thrown a lot of technology at the problem of cybercrime. So we've actually tried to fight it with science. Okay. And I see that as a failure 
I see the problem as being more cultural and therefore we need to take an artistic approach. Wow. In addition, if you look at books like The um, Art of War, for example, yep. which is obviously all about strategy, yep. it talks about needing art to fight what is obviously a human problem, which is also very artistic rather than science-based. So I've gone down that path Okay. Of, using art rather than science. Fantastic. And speaking of books, you're also the author of the uh, Cyber Intelligent Executive, uh, and I've had quite a few authors on. Um, have you found that having written a book that's been useful for your business? It's been incredibly useful, so it's helped me get my message out there, Right. but it's also helped me open up lots of new doors to new opportunities. Okay, excellent. Well, we'll uh, come back and talk a lot more about uh, your business in a moment, but why don't we just go back and just get the uh, the backstory first. So tell us a little bit about you know where you were born and your early life and what essentially took you on this pathway to having your own business now. Well, I was born back in 1973 in Melbourne. Right. Um, I grew up in a very poor family. My parents were quite a bit older than me. Um, they retired um, when I was still a child, okay. um, so that means they ended up on the pension, which made matters worse. Um, there were times when we struggled to get enough food to eat. We certainly didn't have any of the, the standards which um, were apparent at the time. For us, those were luxuries, even things like TV, radio. Um, I actually saw technology as being a great future um, aspiration, being wanted to be part of that, and also seeing the potential for creative um, freedom, to explore creative freedom and to express yourself however you liked, especially when I first witnessed what a computer could do. That really fascinated me. Right. And the fact that, you know, your parents were quite old when you were born, did you have older brothers or sisters? Um, I had two younger brothers. Oh, two younger um, so brothers. it was harder for them. Right. Um, one of my brothers today is a statistician, and the other one has followed in my parents' footsteps, and he's a, a pensioner, even though he's only just turned 40. Okay. Well, uh, um, and so when you were growing up, you know, you talk about art and you talk about passion and creativity. What were some of the things that, you know, you were quite passionate about from a creative perspective? Well, I always liked to, to draw and paint when I was young. Um, I actually got good results in art at school, but for some reason I steered myself down the science path. I don't okay. know why, yeah. but I, I certainly don't have any regrets. Right. Um, I actually like to get out there and I like to explore colour where other people use black and white. I okay. like to um, think about things differently and I was quite happy to be vocal about those. So whilst I am an introvert, I'm right. very vocal when it comes to seeing people doing things the wrong way and challenging that status quo. Uh -huh. and, helping get the correct message out there. Okay, cool. You're wearing a very uh, bright purple tie. Uh, people obviously listening can't see that, but uh, I get where you're coming from. And so um, you uh, went to high school and then you went uh, into university? I did, and I always wanted to get into IT at university, but for some reason my parents said that's not a good idea. I guess because they were quite ill, they wanted me to get into medicine. Right. Um, what happened in the end was I went into physics, which I saw as, well, it's science enough for them, yeah. but at the same time it gets me closer to electronics and technology. Um, the re their reason for wanting me to go into um, something like medicine as opposed to IT was they said, well, there's going to be a glut of IT people. Right. Um, you'll find yourself struggling to get a job, but obviously that's far from the truth yeah sure well I suppose when you know you're a bit younger than me but uh, when I was going through high school IT haven't hadn't even really emerged as a profession yet uh, so um, 
uh, parents, you know, particularly wanting to have the best lives for their kids are often directing them towards medicine or the law or more traditional careers, mm -hmm. I suppose. So you, you um, studied physics at university? I did. So I completed uh, four years of physics. I then started doing my postgraduate degree in physics. Right. Um, it was in the area of upper atmospheric physics, which right. is looking at magnetic storms as opposed to electrical storms. Okay. So whilst that sounds quite interesting, it gets right. pretty dull and boring because it's a lot of analysis of data. Right. And why, why was it that particular topic uh, appealed to you in the first place? Well, there weren't a lot of topics to choose from, so it was either looking at electrons, okay. um, so effectively looking through high-powered microscopes, right. or looking out effectively towards the stars. Uh -huh. I'd always been more of a telescope fan than a microscope fan, okay. so uh -huh. that's what led me down that path. All right, so uh, you started in that direction and then you obviously had quite a significant uh, pivotal moment of uh, deciding you wanted a different career. That's right, it was a bit of an epiphany. What I realised when I looked at the people around me, there were very few jobs in physics in Australia at that time, so we're talking about the mid-1990s here. Yeah. Most of them were academics and they went overseas, um, especially to California or Germany mm -hmm. or places like that, to actually get a good role in physics. But then I looked at a lot of them who were retiring and they're actually on very poor salaries. They were struggling to get grants to keep them going mm -hmm. and they didn't seem to be very happy. And I sort of projected my my image into that mirror, future mirror, and saw exactly the same thing. I thought 20, 30 years from now, I'm going to be very unhappy. Uh -huh. So I went back to my original goal of IT and I thought, I've got to engineer myself into an IT role. Okay. And the way I did that was I joined a number of computer clubs with the intention of finding myself a job. Okay. And uh, and so where did that lead to? Well, within six months I found a job and it was at the very university I was studying. So that means I could study part-time and I could work part-time. Studying now in IT or closing so was, out your no, I was physics? actually trying to close out my physics degree. So I was getting okay. close to having a thesis ready to right. actually submit um, a PhD. Okay. And... About four months into my role, I just thought, what am I doing? I'm kidding myself. I don't really want to be doing physics. Uh, having a PhD title would be nice, but it's not a, a be-all, end-all. Yeah, sure. So I decided to focus purely on my IT career. Okay. And, uh, and what sort of IT work were you doing at the time? My very first job, I was a network manager. Uh-huh. And that was actually quite a, a lucrative title and quite, a, a, quite a, a niche title to have at the time. And okay. Very well respected in the IT industry. So I walked straight into that job right. um, and was looking after a computer network in university uh -huh. and managing um, a number of staff mm -hmm. as well as helping teach students as well. Okay. And I suppose at that time universities would have been very much at the forefront of a lot of IT technology. They were. So that was my first exposure to the internet and that's, keep in mind, that's a time when it hadn't quite become commercial. Mm -hmm. So at that very point in time, there were fewer than 30 websites in Australia. Mm -hmm. Wow. Whereas now they're, they're billions. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite an interesting statistic. As mm -hmm. an aside, I'm reading this book uh, at the moment, I think it's called The Inevitable, uh, which is all about you know the future of this technology and so on, written by the uh, editor of Wired magazine. Have you read that book? I have, yes. Yeah, I'm finding it fascinating. Some of the stuff's a bit beyond me, but, uh, but it's uh, a bit interesting and a bit scary too. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, after you'd been at the university for a while, you had quite a, um, a change then in terms of moving into a different kind of industry. I did. So whilst um, university gave me a great start, um, it 
obviously doesn't pay as well as the private sector. Yeah. We seem to have an attraction to go to the private sector. Yeah. And that's what I did. So I moved around. I took on some contract roles. I worked for um, a number of well-known brands such as Crown Resorts down in Melbourne, um, Woolmark. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually I joined an advertising company called Mojo. And that was quite interesting. Being an introvert, I was the odd one out. There was certainly a lot of rambunctious people in that organisation. And whilst you would think they would be tech savvy, they certainly weren't. The creative people certainly had high-powered computers. Yeah. But the executives would actually dictate their email to their PAs. Yeah. And the PAs would go and type them up. But by the time I left there, they were actually using computers themselves. Wow. So I'd actually managed to interest them. Okay. And am I right in saying that Mojo is a business head office in Queensland? Um, no, so this is actually headquartered in Sydney. Okay, uh, right. I, I worked out at the Melbourne office. Yeah, I remember uh, Mojo were quite a significant firm mm. here in Queensland. That's um, right. uh, but uh, I had some dealings with them in my past mm. as well. So uh, you work in the, the glamour of the advertising industry, and uh, and then what happened from there? So then I decided to move to the other side of the fence. So instead of being a consumer of technology, IT services, and so on, I was actually selling it. Okay. So it was, I guess, a sales role to some degree, but it was called pre-sales. So it meant I needed to be technical, mm-hmm. but at the same time be able to put on a sales hat. Right. And I, um, I note from the uh, your profile being an introvert, as you say, INTJ, uh, you know, um, deliberately putting yourself in the space of having to get out there and put that sales hat on, that must have been quite confronting for you. It was very confronting. And then to top it off, I actually added public speaking to that list right. of achievements that I needed to accomplish. Uh-huh. And so when you were, you know, looking at your own skills and, and I suppose doing a skills analysis and saying, you know, I've got gaps in these areas, that was a very deliberate choice of yours to to go and do that then? It was. So I knew that if I wanted to exceed in the world and to make a dent in in the problem, especially today, cybercrime being a massive problem, I needed to get myself out there, get out of my comfort zone and make that difference myself. Okay. And so... um Knowing that this is not your natural go-to place, what were some of the things that you uh, took on board in terms of training or reading or mentors or so on, you know, to help you to transition into, you know, that extroverted type role uh, comfortably? I did take on a number of mentors. Now, they may not realise that they were mentors, but I was right. certainly watching every move they made. Uh-huh. I'm not in a stalker sort of way, but, <laughs> but actually watching what what they did, um, how they were successful, when they had losses, analysing what those losses were, what contributed to those, right. um, and, and so on. I also read a number of books. Um, I taught myself how to speed read, so that yeah. means I, I can actually read. Uh-huh. Probably close to 600 to 1,000 books a year. Wow. And 600 to 1,000 books yeah, a year. That's right, yeah. And you still do that now? I still do that now. Jeez. And sometimes I speed listen as well. So okay. I actually get an audio book and I play it back at three to four times the speed and uh-huh. take it all in. Um, I also decided to put myself through a number of different training courses, including sales and marketing. Right. Um, and of course, I kept up my IT professions as well. So I made sure I kept uh-huh. fresh in the dynamic industry that IT was. Right. So saying this in the uh, the nicest possible way, you're in an IT geek type role and you also became, you know, a geek in terms of you really wanted to learn, you know, from the best in terms of business and uh, it sounds to me as though you're extremely deliberate and wanting to amass as much knowledge as quickly as possible. I've always been a fan of, of learning and I guess that goes back to my childhood where obviously I didn't have a lot of opportunities but having a public education right. was something that I was entitled to yeah, and I sure. made the most of it and to this day I love learning, I'm oh, always learning excellent. something new. 
And uh, and at that point, do you think that you had a uh, a quite a clear intention about what you wanted to achieve in the future, or were were you still kind of accepting opportunities as they presented fairly sort of um, uh, reactively? Um, I did actually have a clear path, but I would also accept opportunities where I, I saw that it made sense and would right. actually help me accelerate my career path. Okay. Okay. Great. And so, um, but you're still at that point working for others, aren't you? Yes, I was. Okay. And so, um, uh, and there were a, a number of different firms that you worked through during that period. There were a number of different different firms. All of those were in the IT space. Some yeah. were vendors of technology. Some were suppliers of technology, so they would actually resell other people's technology. By that stage, I would I'd moved from having a more generic IT role into having a security-specific IT right. role. Because okay. I saw that that was the future. Right. I saw that technology was becoming a commodity. And the two things that were growing rapidly were storage, yep. because obviously we're creating more and more data yep. each day, but also security because it was something that we didn't seem to understand mm -hmm. very well overall. Right. And it was cyber criminals were really taking advantage of that, and they still are today. And so, was there at the time a uh, particular event or something that was happening in the world that you looked at and and you said, "Aha, that's that's my future." I just found it more interesting, a concept. Right. So, I, I mean, obviously, we all like personal security. Um, financial security is another thing that comes up from time to time. Job security. This was actually cyber security, securing information. So yeah. It just seemed a natural progression. Okay. And, um, and so uh, you worked for a number of firms, and then you had a bit of a break and, and uh, you know, in some respects retired out of that life. I did. So I did quite well for myself. I was always on the forefront of what was happening, keeping abreast. Um, having read all of those books uh, enabled me to differentiate myself enough. Right. Um, and I basically retired. It wasn't, it wasn't a... Um, a harsh decision that was made. It came about because I actually felt quite ill. I was working so hard. Right. I was good at what I was doing, and I was doing it so, so um, frequently that it actually made me really ill. Yeah, you're doing a lot of travel. I was doing a lot of travel. Um, in fact, one year I was on 157 planes. Right. So and uh, home. with quite a young family at the same time. Um, at that time, I didn't have a family, so that was very fortunate. But okay. then later on, right. Um, I stopped travelling to that degree. I was still travelling a bit, and that's yeah. when I had a young family. Okay. So that, that was another decision behind right. to retire as well. Okay. But I'd always had this burning idea in the back of my mind of starting my own business, and that goes right back about 10 years now, Right. Um, where I, I could see that the problem was getting bigger. I could see that as an IT person, I was only able to solve a fraction of that problem. Mm. I actually needed to put on more of a management Mm -hmm. and become more of a management consultant okay. in order to solve the bigger problem at play. Right. So how long did your period of retirement last for? About three months. <laughs> so really you just had a bit of a long holiday. Yeah, it was more of a long holiday. Right, so and I, I guess that while you're on that three-month holiday, the you know the cogs are turning in your brain in terms of what's next. At the, so probably whilst you weren't working, you were still you know very actively thinking about the future. That's right. So there are two reasons why I got out of that retirement or long holiday, if right. you put it that way. Yeah. Um, one was that I was incredibly bored. Um, yeah. Um, yes, I could still learn information, but I'm a person that also likes to apply what I learn. Right. So not being able to apply it made me extremely bored. Yeah. The other reason was I actually had people effectively knocking on my door saying, we need your help and we can't find anybody else who can actually articulate the problem and find a solution in the way you do. Right. So, I mean, that 
was quite flattering and okay. it prompted me to realise I've got a responsibility to actually go out and help people solve this problem. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, obviously you invest a lot in terms of your education, in terms of business acumen, and no doubt the, uh, you know, the technological... Uh, uh, paradigms associated with work that you're doing but you know the fact that these people are coming to you and saying you know um, we need your help I imagine that were many other people in the market who would have similar sort of experience and technical capability well what do you think are some of the traits that you um, had that you know allowed you to stand out from the pact in terms of you know actually being a key person of influence I think it was the fact that I had a wider education, so it wasn't just an IT education, actually had the business acumen. Okay. I could actually look at the problem through a business lens and I yeah. could see that instead of going out there and trying to get people scared into buying technology, yeah. that it required people, process technology and communications and at the same time it required looking at it as, as a business problem because mm. there were certainly business impacts there. I mean. We like to think of cybercrime as being an operational impact, but it extends into physical impacts, mm -hmm. personal impacts, legal impacts, um, reputational impacts and financial impacts. Mm -hmm. And IT certainly isn't equipped to deal with all of those. Mm -hmm. And so was that then the birth of your current business? It was. Right, okay. And so what year are we talking now? So we're talking 2013. Okay, so three years ago. That's right. So um, when you started the business, in terms of your vision for the future, you know, what, what, what were some of the things that you were excited about, you know, achieving uh, as a business owner? Well, I was excited about getting the word out there that there's a better way to tackle this problem and mm -hmm. it requires going beyond just the IT people who can mm -hmm. solve that small fraction of it. It's, it's about getting people together, getting the entire business to collaborate, getting the board of directors on board because they should actually be accountable for the problem. Mm -hmm. You can't push that down to IT anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it's obviously had huge ramifications that we deal with today. It was getting the executives to take on a responsibility role. It was getting the rest of the organisation to play a support role. Mm -hmm. Getting subject matter experts in where their deficiencies to provide a consulting role. And then in the case of um, publicly listed companies, getting shareholders to be informed. In the case of government entities, getting taxpayers to be informed about mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, you have uh, some restraints from a confidentiality point of view in terms of talking about specific clients that you work with, but uh, I understand that you're working with you know a number of ASX 200 companies. So without going into you know um, the confidentiality of the situation, you know, talk us through uh, a typical situation where you've gone into a client and you know this is where they're at then and through the work you've been doing with them you know this is where they're at now okay so in most of those cases I've gone in at a very early stage so they've felt that they had everything covered quite well um, what I've been able to uncover though is that they're preparedness for the next cybercrime is very low. In fact, most companies, um, even those we, we deal with on a daily basis, typically are around about uh, 25 to 35% prepared for mm -hmm. the next cybercrime. Some are slightly above that, but, but most of them fit mm -hmm. into that, that mark, which is a pretty scary proposition to be mm -hmm. in. Um, what I do is I lead them through a process called Insight, where we go and discover how prepared they are and that also looks at are they getting a financial return on their current investments. So mm -hmm. not just the technology investments, but the people and the process as well. So usually that's quite a scary moment for them because they actually realise 
they certainly haven't been getting any value out of it. They've been pouring more and more money into it each year. Mm -hmm. I mean, last year, um, globally, it was actually a $70 billion problem. Wow. Um, and so would you yeah. find that the companies had experienced some kind of cybercrime, so they're in reaction, you know, this has now happened to us, we've got to get more proactive, or are you going in to see them and largely they haven't experienced any significant issues at that stage? Most of them have already experienced something. Okay. Um, the most scary um, outcome is when they haven't actually realised that they've already experienced something. Right. So that's quite an eye-opener for them. So what um, would be an example of that then? So for one company that I dealt with, they'd actually had people accessing their internal databases, which was effectively their, their intellectual property, yeah. for the last two years, and right. they hadn't realised. And so it was only through you doing your initial investigation that you even uncovered that? That's right. Wow, okay. Yes. That must have come as a very nasty shock. It is. So most have been very reactive. So the next phase is foresight, which is to actually get them thinking proactively about this, so planning, putting a strategy into place, which is where the, the whole artist thing comes into play because developing a strategy is certainly more art than it is science. Yeah, okay. And then the final piece is oversight, which is then putting governance in place, so making sure they've got the right people, process, technology and communications in place in order to to execute that strategy. Mm -hmm. so, uh, um, so talk us through you know, a real example of what that looks like. Um, again, you know, maintaining the confidentiality of your clients. You know, um, what, what uh, if you look at where they were when you came in and, and actually what they look like now in relation to the various um, strategy imperatives that you've dictated, uh, give, give us some concrete sort of examples. Okay, so in one particular case, um, a company was spending $200 million on its cybersecurity. It was actually losing close to $400 million a year in cybercrime, so this is damages. Right. So these were, um, I was able to help them quantify their legal costs, their reputational costs and their financial costs mm -hmm. of cybercrime breaches. Mm -hmm. And to date, that company now is spending about $100 million on cybersecurity and its last damage total was about $30 million. Wow, well, that's a massive turnaround, isn't it? And so um, when you went to talk to them, I imagine that they weren't even cognizant of the $400 million cost. They weren't. So they'd actually written off some of the costs, which they were aware of, which were highly visible, such yeah. as operational impacts, yeah. loss of productivity and so on. But the fact that they were, were losing clients, clients were actually saying, well, we don't trust you anymore. Business partners were saying, we're going somewhere else because we don't have complete faith in you. Mm -hmm. And hidden costs, financial costs, um, it, it, the fact that they were even losing staff because staff were quite annoyed by the fact that the company was all over the place. Shareholders were losing interest in the company mm -hmm. because they didn't know whether their money was safe. Mm -hmm. These were things they hadn't factored in. Mm -hmm. And the $200 million that they were actually spending, what, what was that being spent on? So a lot of it was being spent on technology, and that technology hadn't been integrated properly, which means it had added a lot of complexity and a lot of overhead, so it required more people to manage it, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, still wasn't being managed effectively. Um, they were spending a lot of money on people that weren't as efficient as they should be. Um, in some cases, they were outsourcing things, and mm -hmm. they weren't getting good results as mm -hmm. well. So it was a complete shock to them to realise that they were wasting a lot of money on things that just needed slight tweaking. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me as though, you know, whilst you're working within this space of um, uh, cybercrime, you know, what 
the 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 breadth of uh, uh, considerations that you're looking at are far broader than just okay, well, this is what we're spending on virus protection software, for example. That's right. So I, I like to get a complete picture, sort of look at everything they're doing from the people aspect, the process aspect, and technology mm. aspect. And and how long did it take you to take them from that initial situation to you know this current situation, which is obviously substantially better? So it was just under a year. Okay. And and for you, you know, when you're doing a project like that, is that pretty much you know, a full-time project for you, uh, taking up all of your resources, or are you working with multiple clients uh, simultaneously? I service multiple clients simultaneously. Okay. And so you have a team of people who uh, go in and obviously support you with that? That's right. I've got a team of eight people, and it's unfortunately it's not easy to find people that can actually tread that line of IT plus business. So right. I have to be a mentor to, <laughs> to Sure. People. And I imagine um, uh, working this space with so much change happening literally on a daily basis, how do you remain informed about what's happening globally and, and aware of trends and, and challenges and so on? Um, so social media is quite good for that. Um, certainly there's news all the time on feeds like Twitter, for example. Um, LinkedIn certainly a good source of information. Um, I use Google Alerts as well to keep up to date. Now there's so many cyber crimes happening every day that it's hard to keep across all of it. Right. Um, so I actually have people that do some research for me and actually summarise what they find on the internet as well. So that helps. They effectively condense an entire article down to a couple of lines. Yeah. So it helps me. Okay. Um, speed reading certainly helps. Sure. But, but there's so much content out there that even speed reading has limitations. I think we'll have to do a separate podcast where you can teach us all how to do that. That's a, an amazing skill to be able to read that fast. And and this morning at the presentation I attended, you um you gave some illustrations of some cyber crimes that you know particularly dramatic and most people probably aren't aware of. To you know talk about some of those things. Okay, so one of the, the more interesting ones was the biggest bank heist in history and that happened in 2015 mm -hmm. and it was cyber criminals um, we don't know how big the gang is because they haven't been caught but it was certainly a gang of them they targeted mm -hmm. banks in Russia US Germany China and Ukraine and they stole one billion dollars so they did that without setting a foot in the bank so long gone are the old days where people would actually go and take a, a gun into a bank and mm -hmm. hold it up and steal yeah. the money that's all changed sure so these people they could have been on the other side of the planet for all we know. Um, what was interesting was the way they did it. So that for a long period of time, they actually monitored what bank employees were doing. So effectively, they were recording every screen screenshot um, of their daily activities and going back and effectively playing that back, looking at what bank employees were doing, and then they mimicked them to the point where they could actually go and steal money and then go and inflate the bank balances so that it looked like there had been no crime mm -hmm. in place. Um, they also managed to get money to spit out of ATMs at predetermined intervals, and they had money. Um, uh, sorry, they had people waiting there to collect that money. Now, like in the drug industry, we call those people mules. Yeah. So they're effectively an accessory to the crime without even knowing it. Mm -hmm. They think they're working for a legitimate company. Mm -hmm. And so, how did that eventually get discovered then? So it was discovered because people started to notice that they didn't have money in their bank accounts. Right. So even though they'd artificially inflated the bank account record to look as though the money was still there, it wasn't. 
it wasn't. So if you tried to withdraw, say, $100 and you didn't have it in your bank account, then that's certainly going to raise red flags. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, I mean, that's obviously a dramatic uh, uh, example. I imagine that the people who are committing these crimes must be incredibly sophisticated to be able to do that, or is this pretty basic stuff that any, you know, cyber criminal would be able to master fairly easily? They are sophisticated. Now, there's a bunch of cyber criminals who aren't so sophisticated. In fact, there's a lot of people that take on this more or less as a hobby, right. hoping to make some money. Um, it's quite easy because there are a lot of freely available tools and there's a lot of low-cost services that enable them to do this. But usually those are the ones that get caught. Uh -huh. The ones who don't get caught are the ones who actually spend a lot of money. They invest a lot of money. In fact, they even go setting up proper companies where they've actually got um, help desks, they've got um, support people, um, they've even got a receptionist taking calls. Right. And it looks like a legitimate company, but behind the scenes, they've actually got a team of um, very clever cyber criminals, they've got a team of good marketers, mm -hmm. um, they've got very savvy business people, and even salespeople and recruitment people who go out recruiting mules mm -hmm. and actually go and do a lot of the grunt work. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, what would be um you know, a more real example of something that, say, an Australian company uh, might be facing that they need to be uh, really aware of, a uh, more general run-of-the-mill cybercrime. Um, so intellectual property theft is certainly a big one. Um, there was a company um, a few years ago, um, their name was Codan. Um, they were actually making um, equipment such as um, gold detectors, metal detectors and okay. so on. Yep. Um, they actually had other defence grade equipment as well and they were finding that their market share had suddenly disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, also they were having people sending their technology back in for repairs and they realised, hang on, that's not our technology. Right down to even the serial numbers were counterfeited. Okay. So what had happened was intellectual property had been stolen and the number of Chinese companies that were manufacturing low-grade knockoffs of this right. technology and but with flooding the, the market with, with their brand on it with though. their brand right and even right down to their serial numbers and part numbers wow so they'd actually completely reverse engineered everything and rebuilt it from scratch mm -hmm. so using that as an example um, were you to be engaged by an organization like that you know talk us through what are the the practical things that you would implement to uh, to stop that situation so the first step is always insight, which is to look at where they are today. What's the, the current state? How prepared are they for the next cybercrime? Why weren't they prepared for this one? Uh -huh. uh, to assess the gaps. Then and the next typically steps, what sort of gaps uh, do you identify? Usually they've invested heavily in technology. They haven't got that balance of people, process, technology and communications. Uh -huh. They've also um, not utilised the technology they've got very well. They certainly don't have any buy-in from the executives as well, so effectively they're almost a silo within mm -hmm. the business. Um, if they've even been able to communicate with the executives, the executives have probably shot them down in flames because they haven't understood a word they've said, so okay. there's been a language gap there. Right, yeah. Um, so it's to identify those sorts of gaps. Then the next stage is obviously that the foresight piece put in a strategy to help them eliminate those gaps. Mm -hmm. So what would that strategy look like? So, I mean, every strategy is different, but in a case like that, it would actually involve helping them get that balance of people, process, technology and communication, would help them look at getting better value out of what they've, they've currently got, mm -hmm. their current investments. Um, if they certainly don't have subject matter experts in the business, then maybe that's a good case for outsourcing mm -hmm. or calling in consultants who can help them 
on a periodic basis mm -hmm. as needed. Mm -hmm. um, but then the last piece is usually the governance piece, which is making sure that everybody in the, in the organisation plays a small but vital role, mm -hmm. and that includes the executives. So if there's that language gap there now, let's educate the, the mm -hmm. directors. Mm -hmm. um, I usually like to educate them on six basic words, which they already understand the meaning of. Right. They just haven't thought of those words in the context of cybercrime. Okay. Those words are assets, vulnerabilities, threats, attacks, breaches and impacts. Mm -hmm. And I note from your methodology, both in the book and what you presented this morning, you, uh, uh, you have a, a very specific um, a methodology that gets implemented around each of those six words uh, to get people to, you know, a best practice scenario. It does, yes. So by the time they're finished, they end up in a state called cyber resilience. Mm -hmm. And I, I note from your book that you are saying uh, it's impractical to think that you are uh, you're not going to experience cybercrime, um, but resilience is a different way of um, considering it. So talk us through that a bit. Okay. So. To date, what a lot of companies invest in is cyber security. Some have gone a step further and engaged in compliance. A lot of the banks, for example, um, have been forced to go down that way for regulatory reasons. Mm -hmm. Same with other companies in the financial services sector. The problem with those is that it's very much about trying to stop threats. Mm -hmm. And the problem is there's only so far we can go in terms of stopping threats. So if you can't stop a threat, Typically, that puts people on the back foot. They become very reactive. Mm -hmm. The whole idea with resilience is it's to get people thinking up front that you can be proactive and you can start thinking about not just threats but vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. If you can't stop those, then obviously threats. If you can't stop those, then you fall back to attacks. Mm -hmm. If you can't stop an attack, then it's a breach and then you've got to recover from that breach. So resilience is all about being able to recover and return back to your original state as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And I imagine uh, when you're talking about clients uh, in the ASX 200 space, uh, the board have got a tremendous responsibility and yet I imagine that for the majority of non-executive directors who are typically older and, and less conv uh, uh, you know, they've had less experience in terms of these sort of issues. Um, a big part of your um, engagement is educating them on not only the risk but the technology, etc. It is. What I like to point out is that technology is only a piece of it. So using my philosophy on people, process, technology and communications, technology is one quarter. Yeah. So that means they don't need to be as technophobic as, mm -hmm. as they potentially need to be because there are other aspects that they can certainly lend a hand in and mm -hmm. they certainly understand people very well they understand process very well in order to get to where they are communications I should hope they, they can also have some some experience with as well mm -hmm. so they've already got three of those covered the technology piece they don't need to focus on so much but what they do need to realize is that they need to be accountable for all of this and if they don't have the right people in place now's the time to do it and that may mean engaging third parties and it could be consultants or it could be service providers. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about you know a business which uh, is literally uh, uh, losing 400 million dollars a year, I mean that is massive in anybody's you know uh, perspective regardless of the size of the organisation. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that from a skills matrix point of view, your typical board, you know you had a lawyer, you had an accountant, then you had other people, are you seeing that there is now a stronger demand for non-executive directors who are, you know, really conversant with these um, challenges? I think so. So I think um, we're expecting 
a lot more directors to understand the whole digital transformation piece. Mm-hmm. They don't need to be experts on it, mm-hmm. but they need to know something about it. And even if you've just got one board member who has some awareness around that area, that will certainly make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's part of you know the reason that you went and did your own AICD qualifications, and you're now delivering you know education uh, through AICD. That's right, because I believe that that's where the problem starts. We've actually got to get the board across the line first, Mm -hmm. then that filters down to the executives, then the rest of the organisation. Interesting. And so um, uh, part of this uh, podcast is, you know, talking about what you do, but I'm also interested in terms of, you know, yourself as a business person now. So, you know, you've had an interesting career, uh, you had a break, you've run your own business now for three years. In terms of, you know, your own... Uh, leadership style and and the way that you're leading your organisation, how's that sort of evolved and matured over the time? Um, It's certainly evolved quite a bit, even just in the last three years. So I I actually, obviously, as you've guessed throughout um, this podcast so far, I value education. Yeah. So I actually probably provide my team more education than what any other company would. Okay. Um, so I'm always giving them books to read. Um, I get them to then report back to me on right. what, what they've read so I can gauge their level of understanding. So you have a book club. <laughs> it's a bit like a book club. So, <laughs> so yes, I do have a, a bookshelf with lots of books right. on it. And it's, it's not IT books only. There's psychology yep. books in okay. there. There's business books. There's financial books books and so on so it's getting people to have more of a broader education so okay. I, I believe that's one of the values that, that I, I've adopted which certainly helps my team um, I actually like to get them together every once in a while so yes we tend to work very closely with clients so we're quite distributed mm-hmm. but we need to get together and sometimes that will be having a dinner together okay. so, so yeah just so we can share ideas and keep up with what's happening in the industry and keep up with what's happening just from a business intelligence perspective as well. And when you look at your own business plan, you know, uh, uh, into your three years in, let's say three years from now, where would you like to see your business at that stage? Um, I would see that I would probably have more impact um, outside of Australia. Okay. Most of my clients are in Australia. I do yep. have some that are overseas, but I would see that being a, a broader customer base globally. Mm-hmm. Um, I would see the company probably being about six times the size it is now. Okay. It's growing quite rapidly. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's a lot of demand out there. Um, and I would see that it would have a collection of GM quality people that mm-hmm. can certainly run the business when I'm not around. Sure. And, uh, and again, going back to the fact that you've got a passion for education, what about in terms of your own education? Um, uh, do you have a... Uh, any thoughts about doing formal business qualifications or uh, or ongoing tertiary education for your own development? It's quite interesting you should mention that, Richard, because I've thought about doing an MBA, but I've also listened to quite a few of your podcasts, right. and there seems to be um, mixed feelings about the value of an MBA when you're so far into your career. Yeah. I mean, certainly from my own experience, having done an MBA and having uh, run many sessions for MBA schools to their students about the value of their MBA in the market. I think uh, in the US, it's pretty much taken for granted that if you're at a, you know, a, a, uh, an executive leadership level, you will have done an MBA. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in Australia, you know, there's still very much an emphasis on practical achievements and transferable skills versus uh, MBAs. And I, you know, um, 
they're very expensive and I, I think that you know from my own perspective if I'm advising people I say far better to go narrow and deep than to do an MBA and be just touching on a bit of strategy, a bit of HR, a bit of marketing, a bit of sales, etc. Because as you say, I mean, having run your own business for three years, you, you if anything, you should be teaching the MBA rather than uh, going along as a student. But I, I know that you're also, um, like me, a graduate of the Key Person of Influence program. Um, has that been beneficial to you in terms of your business? It, it has very much so. So that's one of the reasons why I have a book today. I'd always wanted to write one, but yeah. I just never found the time. Right. I, well, obviously I did find the time eventually, but I, I guess it was more motivational problems. So getting somebody to sort of kick me into gear and take action. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the KPI course was brilliant for that. It helped me also refine my message, mm-hmm. which was certainly the key. So mm-hmm. the clarity that I got from doing that course certainly paid for itself many times over. Okay. And so if you were advising some younger, early career business professionals who aspire to being a CEO or perhaps running their own business, you know, what, what have been some of your key learnings along the way that you would share with them? Um, so it comes down to three Ps for me. Um, the first is passion. Now, obviously that sounds very cliched. We hear it a lot, but it certainly is key. You've got to think that these days people are living longer. Um, retirement age is always being lifted, which means we're going to spend probably 40 to 50 years in mm-hmm. a career. Mm-hmm. So it pays to do something that you actually like. Mm-hmm. The next is purpose. Now, that's what moves p- having passion up. Um, so passion alone isn't enough because it's very easy to go out there fishing but if you're not making money from it then mm-hmm. um, you've got to find something else to do yeah. so purpose is what shifts passion um, from well shifts what you do from being a hobby which is what passion can certainly provide mm-hmm. into actually making money out of it so turning it into an actual career mm-hmm. so purpose is certainly key and then the last one is pivot um, the pace at which the world is, is moving these days nothing set in stone so what you might want to do today could change in a couple of years time mm-hmm. um, so being able to adapt um, not being scared of um, putting aside what you're doing right now and pursuing something different later because maybe your passions have changed or maybe your purpose has changed mm-hmm. is certainly key and I've certainly pivoted quite a few times so mm. I went from studying physics to going to, into IT to running a business where it's more of a management consultant and mm-hmm. that, that's key Mm-hmm. And as you say, you know, uh, the likely scenario is unless uh, we're a chain smoker or we get run over mm-hmm. by a car, um, you know, we could well and truly be living into our 80s, if not 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, really at 43, uh, you're, you know, probably not even halfway through your life. So you know, when you're looking to the future, what are the sort of pivots you anticipate, you know, happening for you that you're excited about? Um, well, I imagine one day I'll probably pivot into retirement and right. maybe I'll give it a go for more than three months. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I, I think that that sounds as though it's going to be a little while off, though. Uh, with your plans for uh, world domination, I think uh, you're going to have to put that one on ice. I probably will. I think in the meantime, I probably will pursue maybe a directorship at some point in time. Yeah. I think that could be interesting. I, yeah. I believe I could add some value. Um, I would certainly like to spend a bit more time educating. So we talked about MBAs before, and I know this, most MBAs prepare people well for competitive threats or uh, economic threats, but they certainly don't prepare people for cyber threats. So mm. maybe helping to contribute to some curriculum around that would be mm-hmm. good. Um, I've certainly valued my time 
delivering uh, um, education for the AICD, so I'd love to do more of that as well. Great. And uh, we've talked a lot about business today. Um, when you're not working, what are the kind of things that uh, you enjoy doing uh, to keep the petrol tank full and, you know, you are um, having a balanced life? Um, it's quite interesting because for a long time I sort of struggled to get away from the technology. I'd work with technology, I'd go home and use technology. Yeah. Um, and I've tried to get myself out of that rhythm recently. So I've, I've actually joined a gym. Right. So that helps keep me fit and yeah. it also gets me away from the technology. Right. <laughs> I've also um, spent quite a bit more time with my family recently. So I do have a, a young family at the moment. My youngest daughter is almost two. My okay. oldest daughter is almost six. Right. So I certainly need to spend more time with them and I've made a conscious effort to do so. Um, I also like to travel quite a bit. Um, for holidays, I'm yeah. certainly notorious for travelling for business, but right. travelling for holidays is certainly one of my priorities now. And I, oddly enough, one of my other passions is eating incredibly spicy Chinese food. Chinese food, yeah. right? So, uh, what would be uh, an example of a, a very spicy Chinese dish? I mean, most people would think of Indian, uh, not Chinese, as being spicy. Well, there's a, a little um, province in the centre of China called Sichuan. Yeah. And they're notorious for making what they call hot pot dishes. Right. Effectively, you may have seen some restaurants where people, it's quite odd, um, but people actually cook their own meals in the restaurant. Okay. And what they do is they effectively dip right. um, meat, vegetables, fish, anything they like into uh -huh. a soup base. And that soup base has anywhere between 20 to 80% chilli. Wow. So incredibly spicy to the point where... You probably can't taste anything for the next day. Uh-huh. But you, uh, you, that, that turns you on. Yeah, it, it does, actually. It's incredibly spicy. Food. And uh, does your uh, family share that taste? Um, my wife is actually Chinese. So oh, right. She does. The kids haven't quite got there yet. They certainly don't appreciate spicy food at the moment. But okay. I think you're going to have to edge them into eating spicy food yeah, very slowly. Yeah, fair enough. And being such a high achiever, as you are, with your reading and your business and so on, I imagine uh, you must uh, be uh, a bit of a chef at home as well. I am. I don't cook anywhere near as much as I should. Uh, right. I spend a little too much time running the business. Yeah. And not enough time doing domestic duties. But mm -hmm. I certainly, yeah, when I do cook, I actually enjoy it. Um, I don't enjoy the cleaning up so much. But no. I don't think any of us do. Sure. Um, what I do like is um, cooking the traditional Australian family roast. Okay. What's your roast of choice? Um, Beef. Beef. Like roast beef. Yeah. Okay, oh, fair enough. So, look, just to um, step back just before we close out this conversation to your business. So, um, if somebody's listening to this and they're a CEO or they're uh, on the board of a, a company, um, what would be some of the telltale signs that you would say, if you're looking or thinking this, um, come and talk to me? would be if they don't actually understand how much they're truly spending on cybercrime at the moment. So yeah. yes, they've got some idea of how much they've spent on technology, but if they haven't really looked at the full impacts, mm -hmm. including the reputational impacts, potential revenue loss that they could have in the future because of that, um, whether shareholders are starting to lose faith in them, that sort of thing, then it's worth considering talking to me. I would guess 99.9% .9 of companies would not have an idea of that. 
they would they probably haven't quantified it. They may have an inkling that something's wrong and they can't yeah. quite put their finger on it. But if they haven't been able to quantify it, then I'm the person that can help them do that. Fantastic. Well, Andrew, I'll certainly put uh, your contact details in the show notes. And uh, for anybody who's listening, uh, if I can help to facilitate an introduction to Andrew, uh, feel free to let me know and I'd be very happy to do that. But look, uh, thanks very much for your time. I'm sure you've got a busy day ahead of you before you head back home. So uh, have a great afternoon. Thank you very much, Richard. Okay. Thanks again for joining me today on the Arate podcast. I think you'll agree that Andrew's message is one of hope, but also one of realism in that if organisations don't do anything to protect themselves, then they are definitely at risk of significant challenges from cyber attack. I look forward to having you along on future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.